Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Hello. Hello. Hope hope you're all well. How are you, Hannah? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm the same. We are quickly approaching the semester for those academics and teachers who are listeners. You must be too. It's going to be a nightmare of a semester, I think, pretty much wherever you are. Whatever yep. you're doing, it's going to be an awful semester, but, you know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We'll maybe do an episode on it once we're in. Quite possibly, the, yes. The concept of having people who, number one, are not trained to teach. That's that's the first bit <laughs> about academics. And number two, are not trained to teach online. Teaching online. Or, or not teaching online and therefore getting and passing on the virus yeah (laughs) Um, but that's not our episode today Uh, today's episode is the second part of a two-parter last week we spoke about uh, race and the democratic party in america so if you haven't listened to that you might want to go and listen to that first and this week we are going to do a companion episode on what hannah on well race in politics in britain yeah and specifically we're looking at because we ended our episode by thinking about um uh british south asians in politics and the landscape the kind of electoral landscape in britain looks really different in terms of um diaspora communities and how they vote and representation yeah so if we if we were to do a quick thought experiment and try to think of politicians of color in America who are to the right of the mainstream or at least part of the party that is seen as the right wing party, i.e. the Republican Party, there are hardly any. Ben Carson is in Trump's cabinet. Um Herman Cain, who recently passed away, was a presidential candidate in the last uh, in the last primary. That's about it. You you really struggle to find people of color, black people specifically, in 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 the on on the right wing of mainstream American politics, and that yeah. is just not There's the a case. Couple of South Asians, you know, Bobby Jindal, uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Well, Tulsi Gabbard is. Still Technically, left, yeah. In, in so far as the Democratic Party is left, uh, uh, Nikki Haley. Yes, Nikki, Nikki Haley. Haley. Nikki Haley and Priti Patel are similar. Uh, yeah, and we'll we'll mention Priti Patel in a second. But with with one or two exceptions, um, the the right in American mainstream politics is pretty uniformly white. It's super white. In the way that the right in Britain isn't. Uh, the right in America sees itself as the custodians of white America, right? That That is, 
if if there is a single thing that defines Trump, and we've spoken before of the Trumpification of the Republican Party, but if there is one thing that defines Trumpism as a political movement, it is that, right? He's the custodian of white America. Um, the Tories in Britain might be as racist as Trump is, and certainly there are sections of the Tories that are as racist as Trump is, but the Tories don't present themselves as the custodians of white Britain in the same way, which means that the current Home Secretary in Britain, the current Chancellor in Britain, the previous Home Secretary in Britain, all Tories have been British Asians. Um, and you just don't get that in America. And I guess that is our starting point, to, to, to talk about the Tories and their apparently newfound love for British Asians and, you know, uh, 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 the... the the love, the love affair is is not an unrequited love affair, as it were. Uh, there is the <laughs> there is the the prospect, or or or, or rather the, the the feature that is the the Brexit vote voting British Asian, in the way you don't have a, a as significant, uh, you know, South Asians in America voting for Trump or Black Americans voting for Trump or whatever. Uh, and, and that's that's the starting point, right? So, a, how have we got to the point where the right in Britain is not as uniformly white as the right in America is? And what does that say about the communities of color in Britain, where if you are a politician of color, you can legitimately, apparently, or certainly much more easily, uh, choose between being left wing and right wing? In other words, what has happened to the right-wing people of color in America? They must exist. Where have they gone? Well, so it depends, right? So so the U.S. is a, and this is obviously simplifying things for, for podcasting, but the U.S. is not uniformly white and never has been in this, and neither has Britain, obviously. There have always been people of color and black people in Britain. But the the story of whiteness in the U.S., is a story of settler colonialism and violent settler white people colonialism in a way that in Britain it hasn't been. So the a lot of the race categories that appear in the U.S., both in a kind of formal state, state census type way and also in a kind of, you know, overtly politicized way, are, are legacies of and grappling with whiteness that is colonial and settler so you have but there's there's in terms of community i mean as as much as as a community's community you do have very conservative communities of color i'm thinking specifically of the cuban american community based in florida um there are also other um latino and hispanic communities that also support the Republican party and have done for, for decades. So there are really important and and quite wealthy pockets of diaspora communities that, that are Republican. But I think what's interesting and what you're, what you're thinking about, especially because you're, you are speaking from the UK, from Scotland is the, the kind of, the overtones of the Republican party have moved very much towards white supremacy, overt white supremacy 
in a way that they weren't necessarily in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That there's a there's a fascist whiteness that is now at the heart of the Republican Party that that wasn't there. And, Which and means and wasn't there in in relatively recent past, right? So you know we've we've uh, before we turned the machine on, we were speaking about Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell, both mm-hmm. high profile members of the Bush administration. George W. Bush administration. We spoke before that that if you go back to seventy eight, the the Republican National Committee invited Jesse Jackson to speak, in and Jesse Jackson went not as a a Democrat and certainly not as the you know a multiple time presidential candidate, but as a leader of the black community looking to the Republicans for support for the black vote, as it were. You, you, that wouldn't happen today, right? There is the the Republicans through the seventies, eighties, possibly into the nineties, possibly into the early two thousands, uh, were considering ways to attract voters of color in the way the Republicans today just aren't. Yeah, well, yeah, because there's two strategies, right? You, you to win votes or to to win elections, you can either convince people to vote for you or you can keep them from voting. And in recent times, and this has partly to do with particular appointments to the Supreme Court and the way that the lobbies work in the U.S. as well, there is a, there's a lot of money that has been thrown at the latter option. So really important Supreme Court decisions in the last few years that have dismantled the Voting Rights Act, um, that have made it more difficult for Black people who would normally vote for Democrats, Democratic candidates and the Democratic Party to vote entirely. So you you can do one of of two things. And of course, this is a, a massive, it is a fundamental violation of civil rights. I'm not saying that this is a strategy is legal or okay. But it is the go-to strategy for the current Republican establishment. And you highlighted that moment of the Voting Rights Act, which was part of a suite of civil rights legislation in the 60s that came out of a really, I mean, it was a a huge scale political movements that led to the the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And you identify this moment and how there isn't a comparable moment in Britain. Yeah, so, I mean, Britain has had its anti-racist movements. Uh, they have the various Asian youth movements, uh, uh, the the protests in and riots in Notting Hill, the protests and riots in Southall, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. But it hasn't solidified into uh, a unified movement which has been had long has had a long enough legacy to be associated with any one political party. Right? So because the civil rights movement and the way it happened uh, in America partly partly due to the due to JFK and then more even more emphatically Lyndon Johnson's uh acts as precedent, it became associated with the Democratic Party so that uh, the black vote and the vote of color generally 
became a thing that eventually today the Democratic Party can sort of take for granted. And, and that brings its own problems, which, which we spoke about a little bit last week. Uh, but you haven't had that in Britain. So the, the left-wing politics versus right-wing politics in Britain is not, at least in terms of rhetoric and discourse, explicitly about race. Uh, if you think uh, one of the one of the stories that is is uh, quite current at the moment in British news is a is this sort of phantom mirage threat of boatloads of refugees uh, a, a, approaching Britain and you know Britain being swamped by boatloads of refugees and the British Home Secretary Priti Patel who's a woman and she's a British Asian woman has has throughout her political career taken a very hard line stance on refugees and immigration. She continues to do this at the moment. But it is very clear that she doesn't see this in race terms. That's not to say she's not being racist. I'm absolutely not saying that. But what I am saying is that she sees this in terms of left wing and right wing politics. Right? So there's a there's a quote that has been attributed to her that she's taking a lot of joy in in the the fact that the the policies she's enacting will lead to the le- left going into a meltdown and she doesn't see herself as the left obviously she's as far from the left as it as it is possible to be but you can see that in her mind at least the way she's talking about it is about right and left in a way that isn't rhetorically aligned to race in the way that it is and would be in Britain, in America. Yes. And it's really interesting, actually, as you were talking, I was just thinking of Theresa May. So Theresa May, before she was prime minister, she was home secretary, which is Preeti Patel's role now. And the a lot of the, we're going to talk about Windrush and some of the other uh, kind of high profile moments where discourse around race in Britain appear um, had to do with her policies um, and were results of her policies. Um, But all of the the framing of Theresa May's role as home secretary when she was home secretary was, it was right-wing conservatism. Whereas I always read it as deep racism that that she was very inconsistent as a as a prime minister on lots of different things. And she was very unclear what her position on Brexit was. She was really ambiguous about her position on Brexit and um, economic policy because that was her strategy. That was her, her political strategy. She was never, ever inconsistent or vague about her position on immigration. And a lot of the, the rhetoric that she put out in, to the world and was perfectly happy to say to journalists was explicitly and deeply racist to my mind, but it wasn't read that way in Britain. It was read as right wing. And there's a continuity between Theresa May and Preeti Patel that if you are interested in and attendant to and have certain kind of assumptions about representation and identity, and if you are American, for example, that might surprise you. Yeah, it, it just it it makes me think a little bit. So, uh, 
I think was it two or three weeks ago, uh, Donald Trump gave, it, it was either a speech or a tweet, I can't quite remember, but then they're basically the same thing for Trump, uh, where he addressed suburban housewives of America uh, and promised to roll back certain Obama initiatives to do with forcing uh, local authorities to build affordable housing. Um, and that was, Trump didn't explicitly use words like, to do with race, but it was absolutely read in race terms, right? Where where uh, the the notion of affordable housing, uh, you said this, mentioned this before we turned the turned the machine on, is is euphemistically racist in the way that the, that a word like urban is is euphemistically racist, and it was it was read like that. So when Trump promises the suburban housewives of America that he won't force them to live near affordable housing. It is understood that the suburban housewives of America are white and the people living in the affordable housing are not. Now, if you compare that with the the shocking tragedy of Grenfell in London, I'm sure you remember, but if you need reminding, uh, a, a, a massive tower block, which would be the equivalent of affordable housing, I think, uh, depending on where you were in America. This, yeah, the old yeah. word would be the housing projects. Uh, it, the British, the British equivalent is council housing. Uh, yeah. There was a fire and led to hundreds of deaths. I think it's pretty certain that the number of deaths were higher than were reported. But in the aftermath of the tragedy, and the investigation is still going on, no one has ever been charged with it or, or, or prosecuted for it. Uh, but even supposedly left-wing political voices in Britain were able to make the case that it isn't about race, it's about class. Even though, factually, most of the bodies who died were recent refugees or less recent refugees. Uh, but the the discourse about race versus the discourse about class in British British politics means again it became about left and right right so it became the the local the it was a it, the local borough local government was a was a, a Tory run council a conservative council and the rhetoric became this is a this is a, a council which has huge levels of disparity, and the conservatives only care about the richer richer parts of the of the uh, of the uh, local area, and not the poorer parts. And none of that is to say that that isn't true. It is, but race was pretty much silenced in terms of of how it was spoken about. And what interests me is that. If you had an equivalent story in America, I don't think that would have been possible. The silencing yeah. of race would not have been possible. Yeah, and there were, I mean, obviously in our in our sort of, the way our algorithms work, of course we saw the people who were, who were linking Grenfell with race and saying race is central to the story, but it is, the, the key difference here is that it was able to be sidelined because I mean, the, even the, the kind of imagery in the aftermath, the, the kind of survivor imagery, it was so clear that 
all of the people who are affected are people of color. And it's, and like, it, it just seems so obvious to you and me, but the fact that it, it can be either pushed to one side or silenced completely, erased completely is quite a British thing. And it is something that chimes with, with my experience of being an immigrant in the UK, in Britain and how, you know, if, there's just a sort of cacophony of this where there's just a, I guess it's sort of a spectrum of language about race in Britain where it's all variations on a sort of theme about how, well, Britain doesn't have a race problem like America does. And they always use the word, British people use the word America. Um, I tend not to, I try to say United States, of course, because the United States is one, one nation state in two continents that call themselves the Americas. And so, you know, race is a problem in America, according to, to the British mainstream. Is that the, the way of describing mainstream? Um, and, you know, racism is different. Um, there wasn't slavery here. Well, that's one of my personal favorites. Because uh, <laughs> there were no slaves in Britain ever. Uh, and the... And Britain doesn't have to deal with the kind of contentious history of immigration and enslavement that the U S has to deal with. And there's, it's, it's all sort of a, a, and and it's really easy as a white person to be sucked into that, to think like, yes, here's a, you know, we're moving towards utopia. Museums are free. Healthcare is free. There is actual affordable housing. Hey, there isn't any of that in the Bay area where I'm from, you know, so, it's easy to get sucked in to that white liberal view. And it, it's in a sense, it sort of extends privilege in a kind of like, here, be grateful. Yeah. And I mean, as a person of color, I, there are moments when I am right. Like I think that there is something to be said for, polite British racism that excludes you and oppresses you by closing down doors is easier to live with than the racism in the United States where you are more likely to get shot, right? That, I mean, I'm, I'm caricaturing for effect, but and that that's obviously not to say that people of colour in Britain aren't getting shot at a higher than average rate. Of course they are. But because British racism is easier to ignore, it is both easier to live with and harder to fight. Yeah. Uh, which which brings us back to the, the, the fact that Britain hasn't had that civil rights moment because British racism is much more subtle and nuanced and insidious and easier to accommodate. Yes. And there's, I mean, the the um, the differentiation as well that British racism does between different communities of color, and that we've talked a lot about the the really problematic acronym that the government and employers and you know schools use to categorize people of color for purposes of like census taking and and 
doing studies on representation and stuff, BAME, that the, that kind of categorization in the US, you know, it doesn't even come close to being seen as a, as a way of dealing with racism or correcting racial injustice. You know, you, you can't even, ha- you know, there isn't even a space for an acronym to be seen as, as a solution or a Band-Aid or a half of a Band-Aid that's, you know, been left in the bin overnight. You know, like you, you can't, you, you wouldn't even suggest it because it just wouldn't even be close to being enough. Whereas here, you can hide behind BAME and you can hide behind my other favorite class. You can hide behind uh, social class as an explanation, which yet yeah, makes it really difficult to intervene. At what point do you intervene on the in in the process as racism is happening? You know, at what point do you step in? At what point do you make a change? At what point do you legislate? And at what for what do you legislate? And if you if you are a person of color whose political position is to the right of the spectrum, then it is much easier for you to convince yourself that racism isn't a thing. Yeah. And therefore you can you can be uh you know as authoritarian as you like in terms of policing borders because it's about protecting the nation and it's not about race. Yeah. Uh which is which is Priti Patel's position for example. You know you can uh if you if you compare the mainstream media in, Amer- in in the United States and in Britain, so if you go CNN, ABC, New York Times, Washington Post on the one hand versus BBC, um, the even The Guardian, uh, Sky News, Channel 4, uh, it is much, much more common to see op-ed pieces describing Trump's racism in the in the mainstream media in the United States, if you put Fox to one side, and even in Fox now and then, but definitely if you put Fox to one side. Whereas even The Guardian, I think, is more likely to describe Trump as racist than it is to describe Johnson or Patel as racist. It will describe Johnson and Patel as right-wing, and criticize them in those terms, but it won't necessarily describe Johnson and Patel as racist in the same way as it will describe Trump as racist. Yes, and so so this is, we're recording this episode a few days after the mainstream British newspapers have been reporting on a really tragic and violent death of a 16-year-old boy um, who was attempting a channel crossing from France um, to claim asylum and be, you know, you can kind of think probably was trying to reunite with family um, or close family friends in Britain. And the response 
of the Conservative Party to the increase in numbers of people trying to cross the channel has been deeply racist. The language used is one of historical racism that that has direct connections to fascism in the 20th century. But the way that the 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 kind of middle left newspapers have reported the discourse of the current government around specifically the death of a child of color has been, the language has been words like cold-hearted, lacking in humanitarian principles, um, cruel, not racist. And, you know, it is all of those things. Let's be clear about it. But it is also racist, right? Like it's, uh, and, and, you know, you you can there's a there's a very clear comparison between the way this story is reported with the way the separation of families policy that Trump instituted and putting kids in cages uh story was reported where that was clearly reported as the actions of a racist government mm-hmm. or at least reported by obviously by those who are against that policy right and and I guess this is this is this is where we come back to. If your if the if the the right of your of you of the of the political spectrum in your country is centrally identifying itself as a, a white politics, a white identity politics, then the left has to make space for people of color who are right-wing and left-wing, right? Because the the mainstream right political party, the Republican Party, has made it clear that it has no space for people of color who happen to be Mm right-wing. So the Democratic Party has to then say we are a broad tent and we include all of these people. You know, we include Joe Manchin and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, because it, 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 it can't not. The Labour Party doesn't do that. Because if you are a person of color and you're right wing, you don't necessarily see or you aren't encouraged to see the Tories as any more racist than working class white labor supporting families. And you see, I remember the first time I really paid attention to coverage of political conventions in the United States was, I think, the 2008 election. Uh, and just looking at coverage, comparing it to party conferences in Britain, the racial split was so much more visibly obvious uh, than it than it is in terms of uh, in terms of mainstream British politics. So, if I were to try to think about who the next, who the first prime minister of color would be in Britain, there is at least as good, if not a better, chance of that person being a Tory. But a, a, a presidential candidate from the Republican Party who is non-white, I don't see that happening in the foreseeable future. Unless yeah. something drastically changes with the Republican Party. Yeah, or unless race discourse in the United States... <sighs> Changes somehow. 
Um, but the, I mean, there's what's really important, I think, and what we haven't addressed for so for for people who spent time in Britain or who are British, our listeners will will know implicitly what what we mean when we talk about what it means to be South Asian in Britain. Um, I think for listeners in North America, the South Asian diasporas in diasporas, diasporae, what's in North America are, are different. Um, and partly because they're big, it's bigger, the country is bigger. So in the United States and also in, in Canada, you know, it looks different. Um, can you talk a bit more? Like, I, it, I don't know where to begin, like some background on South Asian communities in the UK. Um, besides the, all of the empire. Yeah. And so, so, uh, post a, a lot of the, I mean, there've been, there've been waves of South Asian immigration into Britain. Uh, some of it started pre-independence uh, when there were there's a, a wave of immigration which was what we might in British terms call working class immigration, right? So uh, initially men moved to Britain with working class jobs, door to door sales jobs. There's a there's a really interesting. Uh, phenomenon which apart from anything else points to how much Britain and British society has changed where uh, men, South Asian men often from Punjab uh, would come to Britain and go door to door selling clothes uh, that that was a thing that happened it happened in Scotland, it happened in Ireland uh, both Northern and Southern Ireland uh, for example uh, there was uh, jobs uh, in factories uh, factories in the north, factories uh, in West West London, and also jobs in transport, you know, airport workers, that kind of stuff. Then, or, or parallel to that pre- and post-independence, you had more middle-class migration as well, professionals, doctors. There's a whole whole generation of, uh, of South Asian doctors moving to Britain to work for the NHS. Uh, that eventually... It got taken over or at least competed uh, with uh, software professionals, IT prof- professionals moving to moving to Britain. And then on top of that, you have a whole separate strand of so- British South Asians who came to Britain via East Africa. Uh, so an earlier migration pattern from South, from, uh, South Asia to, to East Africa or South Asia to the Caribbean, and then through various... Uh, local or national uh, global political forces, which we don't have time to go into, many of them ended up in Britain. So, uh, and I mean, this is just a very, very quick potted history, but there, there are other forms uh, of migration as well. Um, but yeah, I guess that, that gives a, a very brief two-minute two potted history. In terms of the communities? Yes. Because I think... Um white people, you know, not to speak for all of us, I don't represent all white people, but I think that the, generally speaking, white people tend to lack just because we don't express much of an interest or concern, a, an understanding of the diversity of 
the diaspora communities you're talking about? So you've got, so you've identified it as a kind of temporal, there's, there's moments where immigration peaks. Um, and it's partly economic in terms of the type of work that people are moving for and around. And then the, the, I guess the, the kind of flavor of the mobility. So whether it's empire or post empire or whatever, um, in terms of the communities themselves, once they're here and creating links back home or creating links to other family who are in diaspora elsewhere, there are differences in terms of the origin. I, I don't love a lot of the language that we have to describe mobility. I think it, it deeply warps the experience of of being someone who moves around, but it is what it is. It's what we have. Um, origin, um, community, which is a word I'm for white people. I mean, religion when I say that, um, also cast the, the, there isn't a South Asian diaspora as a single thing, right? No, there isn't. There isn't. Uh, the, sort of national origins and again i agree with all your everything you said about being being sort of problematic use of terms but uh so there is a sizable bangladeshi population who have certain kinds of links with with sort of back home uh there are certain parts of select in bangladesh for example where uh where there is a significant localized return of resources where people work hard in britain save money up and then want to build a home or build property property back back home uh you have a similar localized uh uh effect or connection with mirpur in azad kashmir so there's a there's a, a community of of british south asians who don't see themselves as indian or pakistani but see themselves as kashmiri um and we obviously don't have time to get into kashmir as a as a political issue just at the moment but but yeah. there is that you have all the regional differences within within contemporary india in terms of language and and uh food and all of that and above above all of that certainly in, in the case of indian immigration but also south asian immigration more generally is you have caste um and it is no coincidence that the typical british asian brexit vote or the con- typical british conservative asian vote we spoke a little bit little bit about this when we did an episode quite a long time ago about zack goldsmith's uh, campaign to become london mayor which was a particularly racist campaign that we spoke about uh it is no coincidence that the the conservative asian vote is overrepresented by upper caste upper class british hindus because a lot of the 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 race tinged or racist positions within the tory party specifically to do with islamophobia for example map on very very cleanly onto the upper caste upper class often northern indian hindu um uh someone once made uh, made a point about 
the the different ways in which these two stories, which happened around about the same time, were being reported. One is uh, Modi and Hindutva India's uh, inauguration of the new temple that will be built on the site of the mosque in Ayodhya, which they destroyed, on the one hand, and Erdogan in Turkey's uh, move to change the Hagia Sophia back into a mosque. And there was a lot of there was a comment about how the 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 latter got much more uh, press coverage, certainly in the West, compared to compared to Modi in India. And I think part of this is that Modi's story maps onto a Euro-American Islamophobia in the way that the other one story doesn't quite. Uh, so this is this the 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 differences between various forms of South Asian communities in Britain absolutely play a part in the the conservative Asian vote. Now, those differences exist among the South Asian communities in India, in uh, the United States as well. But the difference there is when the right wing of your country is so explicit about wanting to kick you out of the country or stopping you from bringing friends and family into the country, then it becomes much harder for you to support that. So so there is a very common phenomenon among this same demographic, upper caste, upper class Hindus in America, who are very pro-Modi, but don't support Trump. Uh, because Trump they see as embodying a racism that is directed at them, right? So I can't bring my wife to America to live with me because Trump won't give me a green card. So I don't support Trump. I support what Modi is doing in terms of citizenship rules in India because I believe the, that India is, being, is under threat from foreigners and Muslims and it, that threat needs to be protected. I don't recognize Modi as racist because that racism isn't directed at me. So there is the the interesting ways in which these differences work mean that the the conservative Modi supporting Hindu there are some who do support Trump but but the number is actually lower than 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 media coverage would imply uh, still can support the supposedly left wing Democratic Party in America in Britain that is harder. It does happen, but it's harder because the Tories make it easier to be Asian and Tory. Well, yeah, and, and if, if um, and I think this is where sometimes well-meaning liberal white people would do well to do Samaria studies, for example. Yes. Um, the, the subcontinent is, one of the most complex regions in the world to think, you know, and it's one of the reasons why it's so difficult, I think for, you know, those of us who teach partition to people who aren't South Asianists to, to be able to teach it because it requires a huge amount of background knowledge that, uh, you know, most well-meaning white people aren't, aren't, you know, willing or able or know how to, to get so you rely on on liberal mainstream discourse about race 
um, and how not to be racist. And you miss out on the fact that there is a really important story about class that has to do with subcontinent. There's a really important story about race in the subcontinent. There's a really important story about caste in the subcontinent. And of course, religion that are really are more difficult to think about in terms of, of mainstream critical race thinking. And I'm not saying critical race theory because I think that's what is needed um, alongside some Marxist theory. But the being able to think about the diaspora as not a diaspora, but as a collection of communities with really different and intersecting forms of identity, one of which is class, which is deeply important here, but another is caste and they're entangled. The conservatives, are they, their existence is to protect the wealth of the wealthy. And there are a lot of wealthy South Asians in diaspora here. And so if you pick, you know, and, and, and you pick, right? Like if racism makes it impossible for you to live your life and makes it really difficult for you to live your life and you experience the trauma as that, and that's how you experience it, you know, you work with an anti-racist party. If your soul, if your, your primary concern is the kind of wealth and um, the kind of sustainable wealth of, of your family and your community, you pick the party that's going to help you protect your wealth. I think that's and absolutely that was, true, yes. Yeah, and so you, it's... Um, and I think for us well-meaning liberal middle-class white people, it's the, it's the complexity of those intersections are hidden or elided by Britain's obsession with the fact that it's not racist. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And as you know, as I said, I, I, in many ways, if I had to choose, I, I'm more familiar with and therefore know how to negotiate the politeness of British racism more. That It's, it's easier to live with in, in many ways. Uh, but that also makes it harder to challenge and makes it uh, makes it much easier to pretend that race that my race doesn't determine my everyday experience. I think that's probably a good enough point to end for for today. Um, hope that was of interest. Let us know what you think. Um, and yeah, stay safe. Look after yourself wherever you are, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?